This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. I can feel it come. Oh, hello. You snuck up on me. That song is just stuck in my head right now. I've had two cups of coffee, which means I'm basically levitating at this point. I have so much energy. It doesn't take much coffee. But I can feel it coming. I can feel Christmas coming, which I always love, the new year. And to wit, this is the last Ask Isaac episode of the season. So um, you won't be hearing from me again for a couple weeks, 2016. We have a lot of cool stuff in store for 2016 on the podcast. I'm excited about it. I'll tell you more on Monday's regular episode, which will be the final regular episode of the year. We'll do a little bit of a year in review with a very special guest. So more on that later. Before we jump into the question of the day, uh, this episode is sponsored by the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, F-E-E. Foundation for Economic Education is one of the coolest places around, and they have an amazing, deep, and rich history. Their founder, Leonard Reed, is one of my personal heroes, personal role models. And when he founded Fee, this was over 60 years ago. I'm trying to get my dates right in my head. Um, There were no voices. I mean, no voices in this country, certainly, and really in the world, who were prominent speaking in favor of economic freedom and sound economic thinking. I mean, planned economies and socialism had swept the world, and that was, the assumption was that was the way of the future. Under different labels and names, not always socialism, but planned economies, that the complex future, it all had to be controlled from a top-down standpoint and be planned. And Leonard Reed um, really educated himself on economics. He was not an economist in the academy by training. And he was an entrepreneur and a visionary and a salesperson. And he understood the need to create a place where other intellectuals who were clear thinking about economics could get together and share ideas and a place where these ideas could be kept alive for the remnant of people who cared about them and to continue to spread these ideas and and to be that vanguard, that intellectual vanguard for ideas when they were very unpopular and keep them promoted, keep them alive. One of his most famous essays, which is phenomenal, it's called I Pencil. Look it up. You should read the essay. You should also watch a really cool animated video of it, I Pencil. Um, It's really, really profound. Leonard Reed speaks from the first person as a pencil and talks about how it came to be. And the, the, the revelation is just how complex the social order of a market is, how complex markets are that no one person could ever plan it could ever have the information necessary. He's drawing insights from thinkers like Hayek and Bastiat and many others to show how the incentives and information built into the market system 
is the greatest coordinating force in human history for millions of people across the globe who don't even know each other, maybe don't even like each other to work together. Powerful, powerful stuff. And the kind of insight that comes with that, that's what you'll find at a fee seminar. Brilliant faculty from all over the country really go deep and, and explore social issues, political issues, economic and, and cultural issues, um, you know, entrepreneurship, what it means for society, all using the lens of economic thinking, fee.org slash seminars. If you are high school or college age, go check out one of these seminars. They're an amazing experience. fee.org slash seminars. And you can put in the application that you heard about it on this podcast. All right. I'm going to jump in to ask Isaac. I have a main question. Does voting matter? And that's what I'm going to cover. But there's a bonus question I'm going to get to first because I cheated on this one. Uh, As I said, I have this year batted a thousand. I have answered every question that's been submitted, even the goofy ones. Um, But I almost skipped this one. (laughs) This one, Danny Benavidez submitted a question. Boy, when was this submitted? Uh, November 3rd. So I waited over a month. What is your college football playoff prediction, i.e. who will get in, how will they win-lose, etc.? So Danny, I'm going to answer your question. Uh, I think Michigan State, Alabama, Clemson, and Oklahoma will get into the college football playoff. (laughs) See? I am foolproof as a predictor of sports. Um, I wish I could tell you this was recorded a long time ago and I predicted that. It's not. I just waited. I didn't didn't answer the question because I don't know. I just... I was, I, I'm too emotionally involved. I'm a big Michigan State fan. And so I just felt like I couldn't be objective. But I will answer the second part of it and give you my prediction. Uh, how will they win, lose, etc.? I think that Clemson is not all that great. I think the ACC is terrible. And Clemson played nobody uh, and almost lost to a South Carolina team that uh, did lose to the Citadel. Um, now again, every team can have a bad week and whatever else, but I don't think Clemson is that great, even though they're undefeated. Um, I also don't think the big 12 where Oklahoma comes from is that great. And Oklahoma lost to a terrible Texas team. Now, again, you can have one week, whatever. I think Oklahoma is a, is a pretty good team. Um, I don't think they're a top four in the country, but they, they, based on what they did, they, they should get in as should Clemson. So those two teams are playing each other. I think Oklahoma will win. I don't think it will be that much of a struggle. Um, Michigan State and Alabama, that's going to be an epic, epic showdown. Michigan State has a very good defense, and they have for many years under Mark D'Antonio, except for this year, their secondary is very, very weak and exploitable. Very exploitable with deep passes, big big plays. Um, However, Alabama, who is a phenomenal team, Nick Saban is an evil genius, a phenomenal coach, uh, who, by the way, used to coach at Michigan State. I was very sad when he left many years ago, but uh, I couldn't be happier with Mark D'Antonio. Alabama doesn't have a whole lot of explosiveness in their offense this year, so they're not a team ideally suited to exploit the deep threat, uh, the, the, the weakness of Michigan State. They're more of a pounded up the middle, run the ball type of team, which Michigan State is well suited to stop. This actually reminds me of the matchup a couple years ago in the uh, Rose Bowl of Michigan State versus Stanford. Stanford was great defense, power running team, and so was Michigan State. 
and Michigan State uh, won that game on an epic fourth and one stand uh, where Stanford tried to run the ball for a few yards and or one yard or less and, and couldn't get it. Um, so I think this could be a good, great, great game. Alabama is favored by 10 points. Uh, I think that's generous. I think maybe they should be favored by maybe three. I think it's going to be really close. I think Alabama has more talent than Michigan State. Um, they have more experience in a playoff environment uh, than Michigan State. Um, but I don't think, I, I think Michigan State is a better quarterback. Um, I think this is going to be a really amazing game. It's going to be neck and neck, and I'm going to be biting my nails the whole time. So I don't know who's going to win that game, but I will predict that the winner of Alabama-Michigan State will win the national title. I don't think Oklahoma or Clemson are very good. Um, in fact, not just because uh, my team comes from the Big Ten. I think I think the Big Ten has three teams in it, at least, that are better than any team in the ACC or Big 12 this year. That's usually not the case. Uh, certainly hasn't been the case recently. Um, but, uh, you know, Iowa, Ohio state, you could even argue Michigan, um, is a tougher team than any ACC team and probably any big 12 team. Uh, they don't seem to play defense in those leagues. The sec, it's tough, tough to say this year. Um, they, they're a little down this year from, from previous years, but Alabama is certainly very, very tough. So there's my prediction. Michigan State or Alabama will win it all after Oklahoma beats Clemson, goes to the final, uh, goes to the championship game, and loses to one of those two. And no, I'm not willing to make a prediction because I want Michigan State to win so badly, but I kind of think Alabama probably has an edge, but I don't want to say it out loud. Call me superstitious. Okay, that was way too long on the bonus question. The real question of the day comes from, let me make sure I've got the name correct, Vivek Raja Sikar. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Vivek, but let's at least stick with Vivek and hope that I got the first name right. The question is, does voting matter? And he adds, he or she, I apologize, I'm assuming it's a he. I'd argue that only if your preferred candidate wins by exactly one vote, i.e. you are the tiebreaker, did your vote actually produce change. Okay, here's the incredibly short answer to does voting matter? No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. <laughs> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into why. And I'm actually going to go farther than to just say that it doesn't matter. So as Vivek pointed out, your vote, unless it's the decisive vote, then in a very, very real non, there's, no, there's nothing normative about this, just stating a fact, your vote did not change the outcome or alter the outcome of the election. Your vote is never the deciding vote. Ever. I mean, I don't know when there was a time where one vote made the difference. And if it ever does, they always recount. And then it turns out that it was like 200 votes or something. Um, it never happens. It's just a mathematical fact that your vote doesn't change an election. It doesn't matter. Won't make a difference. I'm not being a jerk. I'm being true to <laughs> the mathematical reality, right? It's, it's a probability here. And if you look at a national election, the odds that you will die in a car accident uh, on the way to the polls are much greater than that your vote will change the election. It's just not going to happen. Okay. It's purely math. Gordon Tullock, one of the founders of public choice, um, which explores how the political system works and the incentives within it famously said, uh, no, I don't vote. My vote doesn't matter. Why would I vote? It'd be a huge waste. And somebody asked him, well, what if everybody thought that then nobody would vote? 
And he said, well, then I would vote because then my vote would make a difference. <laughs> it's very simple. Um, it's very, very simple. The incentives, uh, there's no incentive. Why, why, would you, why would you vote when you know your vote's not going to... Have any of you ever had your vote changed? Uh, and, you know, unless you're voting at like a, you know, on a church board and there's eight people, right? In a, in a democratic political election. Um, and again, if you're at maybe the township level and a hundred people vote or whatever, there are those rare odd cases. Or if you're at the HOA level, right? It's just math. The fewer people, the, the higher the likelihood that your vote can make a difference. But in any kind of state or national election, um, it's not going to happen. Okay. So purely math, right? Your vote doesn't make a difference in that way. But I'm going to go further because Vivek, the second part of the, the question where Vivek sort of puts forth uh, very clearly says, you know, unless your preferred candidate wins by one vote, um, your vote didn't actually produce change. I would even go further. Even if in that crazy scenario where, oh my gosh, you are the deciding vote and they do a recount four times and it's still one vote and therefore, you know, anybody who voted for that candidate is the deciding vote then your vote produced change. That's the word Vivek used. I don't think we can even say that. I don't think we can say that. Even if your vote in the mathematically almost impossible case is the deciding vote, what did you actually get by that candidate winning? So let's take a look. Does that equal change or does that equal good things or less bad things? I'm going to argue that you cannot make a claim that strong. You cannot say with any amount of certainty that even if you vote and it produces the, the winning candidate, your candidate, that that's uh, automatically a good thing or a better thing. Why? A few, a few reasons. You're going to be rationally ignorant. You actually don't know very much at all about the candidate you're voting for. In fact, they may favor uh, or do a lot of things that are horrible that you hate. They may actually be worse than the candidate you voted against by your own definition, but you are highly unlikely to know that. Why? Because you know that your vote is so unlikely to be the deciding vote, you are not going to spend tons and tons and tons of time and resources trying to learn everything about that person, all of their positions and this, the interest groups they're beholden to and all this stuff. You're going to just sort of accept a lot of weak signals. Oh, I just like that one time when they debated on TV. Oh, they're tall. Oh, they speak well. Oh, they said they don't like taxes, right? Who doesn't say that? Oh, they said they want to cut spending. I like that. They're strong, right? Totally ignorant stuff. Yeah, you have no idea what they're actually going to do. I mean, it's probably impossible to know what they will do, but, but to even come close to it, the level of time required, the cost to you of becoming highly informed about an election is so high and the benefit is so low. The benefit is the infinitesimal chance that your vote might change the outcome. Very, very low chance of benefiting from it. The cost is incredibly high to be informed. Oh, and by the way, if you spend all your time becoming informed, one ignorant schlub uh, cancels out your vote. So people are rationally ignorant. You don't actually know what you're voting for. It's almost impossible to. And you'd be an idiot, frankly, to spend all the time to know every detail of it. Again, because your vote's not likely to make a difference. Who are the very, very informed people in the political process? Well, the special interests are, right? If there is a policy that's going to cost you one penny, uh, a new tax on sugar, what, what is the... the incentive for you to become highly informed on that and go, you know, campaigning to stop some candidate from, you know, winning election because of that policy. 
there's just no incentive. The cost to you is one penny. Uh, and the benefit uh, of, you know, what the, the, the cost of, of the policy is one penny and the cost of opposing it is hours and hours and hours of your time, pain, frustration, um, and being a part of the political process, which is itself a horrible, <laughs> a horrible experience. Um, and if you don't think it's a horrible experience, you might be a sociopath. Uh, okay, so, so special interests, though, let's say the sugar farmer might benefit to the tune of, you know, $100,000 from a policy that cost all the citizens one penny. So they're willing to put in 99000 dollars worth of lobbying efforts, um, campaigning efforts, et cetera, to get their way. Benefits are concentrated among special interests, and then the costs are dispersed among the populace. So the logic of democracy, if everyone's just behaving in a way that makes the most sense and is the most rational, is that you as an individual voter, individual taxpayer, Whatever you're trying to achieve, you're probably never going to achieve it compared to the concentrated interests out there. So even if your guy gets elected, uh, the way that he got there or your gal, the way that they got there is because they appealed to more special interests more effectively than the other person. Now, those may be special interests that you like. They may be special interests that you don't like. Most likely, it's a mixed bag. So it's really hard to say that it was a net win that your candidate won and the other one lost because they're both crappy. Um, they both are, are fleecing the public to benefit special interests. They have to in order to get elected. They have to. That's the only game. You can't just appeal to all individual voters um, and win. You've got to get the money and the backing of those who have an incentive to really, really get involved at a, at a high level. And that's by concentrating benefits on those interests and spreading the cost out over everyone and spreading it through time by debt and borrowing and inflation, You know, basically making the next generations pay, et cetera. So that's the logic of politics. So it's really hard to say, oh, my guy won. Well, you know, your guy won uh, probably because he was more effective at politicking than the other person, um, which is you should be scared by that, <laughs> frankly. Okay, but there's more. But wait, there's more. So let's say that uh, you are highly informed and your vote can be, you know, your vote can make a difference. Um Despite all the evidence to the contrary, you're not going to be highly informed. You shouldn't be. Your vote's not going to make a difference mathematically. But let's let's throw all that away and say that it does. Does the outcome of a democratic election, is it even possible for the, the, the will of voters like you, the people who won, right? Your candidate won. So, so that's supposed to mean something. That means that 51% or whatever it is of the people want something. There's a will of the voters. So now that one at the ballot box, the will of the voters will be implemented. That's the assumption. That's not even really possible for a lot of reasons. I mean, how can you know what the will of the voters is? Let's take a very, very simple example. And I'm going to try to do this verbally. I've never done it without like a whiteboard or something to refer to because it can get a little bit complex. But I'm going to try to walk you through what's called vote cycling. Uh, or it's also called Arrow's impossibility theorem. Uh, or the Condorcet effect. They're all slightly different, but they're all sort of getting at the same the same phenomenon. Okay, here we go. We have three policy uh, positions, okay? And I used to use this example, and then I said, oh, this example is getting dated because uh, it's about troops in the Middle East. Apparently, it's not dated because troops are always going to be in the Middle East, apparently, and it's never going to end, which is horrific. Okay, three policy options. Option A, keep troop levels the same. Option B, increase troop levels. 
Option C, remove all troops, okay? So A, status quo, keep the same level of troops. B, more troops. C, get them all out of there, okay? Now, let's take three different voters with three different sets of preferences, okay? Voter one prefers A to B to C. So in other words, their preferred policy is the same level of troops, but if there's any change at all, they would like it to be an increase in troops. And they really, least of all, would like to remove troops. So this is somebody who's like, look, keep everything the same, but if you're going to make a change, just add more troops and get the job done. That's better than pulling out altogether. You probably know people with, with views like that. Voter two prefers B to C to A. In other words, their preferred policy is more troops. But if there's not going to be more troops, they think you should just pull out entirely. So they prefer to increase troop levels. Second to that, they would prefer to remove all troops. Last of all is the status quo. You probably know people with a position like that. Voter three prefers C to A to B. So that is the, the fewer troops, the better. They prefer to remove all troops. If you're not going to remove all troops, at least don't add troops, right? Better to leave the same number than to add more. You probably know people with a position like that. Now, what's interesting is each of these positions, whether you agree with them, they're all rational. It's a rational sequence of, pres uh, of preferences among the given policy options. There's nothing about those that, that are illogical, right? Given, given their, their preferences, that makes sense that they would hold those views. Okay, so we want to know the will of the voters on this one area with an election of only these three voters. Now, there's something interesting about elections. It's binary. There's choices and there's one winner, right? So let's say you set up a vote between policy A and policy B. Keep troops the same or increase, tro increase troop levels. Given the preferences of the voters that we had, we have two voters that prefer A over B. That's voter one, and that is also voter three, okay? So in a, in a vote between A and B, um, A would win. In a vote between B and C, okay, increase troops or pull them all out, policy B would win because there are two voters who prefer B to C. And finally, in a vote between A and C, keep things the same or remove all troops, C would win because there are two voters who prefer C to A, okay? So what does this mean the will of the voters is? According to the votes, these voters prefer A to B, B to C, and C to A. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. A to B, got it. B to C, got it. And C to A, what does that even mean? In practical terms, it means the will of the voters is to have the same level of troops instead of more, more troops instead of none, and no troops instead of the same number, instead of more, instead of none, instead... Wait, 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 wait. That's like somebody saying that between Snickers, Baby Ruth, and Heath bars, they prefer Snickers above all, followed by Baby Ruth, followed by Heath, which they prefer to Snickers, which they prefer above all before... Wait. That's called non-transitive preferences. It is one of the definitions of a mentally impaired person. The will of the voters is a logical impossibility, okay? So you can see, based on the structure of the voting process, entirely different preferences can emerge. Even if all the voters are well-informed, democracy fails to provide a clear will of the voters for politicians to be accountable to. Now, this is with one policy, right? Three policy options in this one area 
Think about the number of politicians, each with positions on dozens or hundreds of different policies, and it's literally impossible to know what the will of the voters is based on election results. What does it mean if Bill Clinton gets elected? Does that mean that the will of the voters on you know, foreign trade is whatever he said in one of his speeches? You can't extrapolate that from it because Bill Clinton was running against, you know, uh, who was he running against? I'm trying to remember. Was that George Bush Sr.? I think it was. Uh, or Bob Dole. Anyway, long time ago. Um, and what was Bob Dole's position on that and dozens of other things? So the, the politician who wins, really, there's no clear mandate or will of the voters that they are, even if they want to be accountable to it, they can't be because they can't figure out what it is. Okay. All right. So I'm going to get to one final point about why I don't think even if your vote makes makes the difference, uh, which it won't, um, why that doesn't lead to some sort of positive change that you are in favor of. Okay. So let's just quickly review. Your vote doesn't matter mathematically. Uh, even if it did, you are going to be ignorant of what you're voting for because it's rational to be ignorant. And there's some special interest that's going to be more informed than you. Um, so if your vote is the deciding one, you don't necessarily know that you're getting something good because you just probably don't know enough about it. Finally, uh, your vote is the deciding one. Whoever you vote for, they don't even know what you want or how to implement it because there's just not an information extracted from the democratic process to know what won at the polls. So this candidate won. Why did they win? What does it mean voters want them to do on these various issues? They're not going to be able to extrapolate that from the democratic process. So they're going to behave based on what the special interests um, will you know, benefit them for doing. Okay. But it goes even further than that. Not only are you rationally ignorant, uh, Brian Kaplan, who I've had on this show, has this phrase, it's kind of, it's kind of, I don't know, tongue in cheek, that people are rationally irrational. What does that mean? It means when it comes to voting, you are highly likely to lie. You are actually lying about your own preferences. What? Why would I do that? When I go to the voting booth, I vote for the people and policies that I favor. Not really. Not really. How many people say, I vote for the guy who says, keep jobs in America, American job, no more cheap foreign imported goods. And you say, that feels good. That sounds right to me. I'm going to vote for that. America, right? But voting is free besides the, you know, cost of getting to the polls and risking getting in a car accident. Uh, Voting, it's, it's an expression of an opinion. And when you have no skin in the game, when there's no cost to you and there's no way to connect your vote to the actual outcome, because your vote's not going to be the one that changes the election, as we already established, you're just basically spouting off with no sense of responsibility attached to that opinion. You are likely to hold opinions different than the ones that you actually have when costs are involved. What do I mean? You say you don't like cheap foreign goods, but what do you do when you have to pay for a new pair of flip-flops? You go to Walmart or wherever and you buy the $5 pair that suits your needs and you don't care. You don't look to see where it's, where it was made, where it was, you know, imported from. You say you don't want, uh, immigrants coming into this country, but you hire the lawn service that has immigrants, uh, because they do a good job at a lower cost. When actual trade-offs are involved in the real world, your preferences as revealed by your action are very, very different than your preferences 
that you simply state. How, how can I prove this? If what you said you liked was so accurate and true, grocery stores would have this wonderful resource at their disposal. They would just send a survey to everyone within a 50-mile radius every year, every month, and say, tell us what items you like and what items you're going to buy and what kind of food you enjoy. And we'll stock that on the shelves. And they would have this great data telling them exactly what to stock all the time and what to order and what quantities. Okay, we had 500 people say they wanted eggs and, you know, wow, that'd be great. Instead, they have to watch your behavior and predict what you're going to do in the future based on what you've done in the past. That's a lot harder than if you could just tell them. The problem is you wouldn't tell the truth because you don't even know what it's going to be. You don't even exactly know your preferences, but you're also likely when it's free, it's a survey. What are you going to say? You're going to say things that you wish you wanted. You're going to signal to the world. Oh, I voted for kale. I voted for kale because I think everyone needs to be healthy. I'm that kind of person. You want to be seen as someone. Oh, I care about the environment. See my bumper sticker, right? How much do you care? Oh, oh, there's no, you can't put a price on it. Okay. Uh, that piece of vacant land next to your house. I want to buy it and build a house on. No, don't cut down the trees. I'll pay you $2 million. All right, sold, right? Like In the real world, there are costs and trade-offs. So when you're just asked, do you care about puppies and children and rainbows in America? You're going to say, of course I do. No price you can put on it. And in the real world, when you're faced with actual trade-offs, you behave differently. Voting is a perceived free way to indulge your irrational biases. So people do things in the voting booth that are stupid and that don't actually reflect their own preferences as revealed in the market system. All right. So not only does voting not matter, voting is a horrible, horrible way to make decisions, to allocate resources, to coordinate competing desires for finite resources. It's a net negative. The incentives in a democratic system are so bad. It's all the worst incentives that incentivize the worst kind of people to get involved in the process and outcomes that are the least beneficial to everyone involved. Compare that to markets, right? Think about the number of things if you had them decided by votes, like the grocery store example I gave you, like whether or not, you know, uh, an iPod should be this shape or that shape. Uh, you know, what, like, should it be Mac or PC, right? And voting, everything is binary. It's either or. There's no real complex plural solutions. And everything is once and for all, or at least for two years or four years or whatever the term is. Um, and everything is, all the individual voters have no responsibility for their vote. They just spout it out and then walk away. And there's no way to connect that they don't have to be personally responsible. When you vote for a tax increase, it 100% of it doesn't go to you. It's all spread out, and sometimes you don't bear any of the responsibility. So very, very bad incentives in the process. So I would argue, not only does your vote not matter mathematically, it's just irrational and, and silly to vote. It's a, it's a religion that people have. They feel good about it for bizarre reasons. I would argue that uh, it'd be even worse if your vote did make a difference, because I don't want to be responsible for what happens. I can't predict what this person's going to do, who they're beholden to. I don't know what's going to be the outcome of all this. I do know that the incentives baked into the process are crappy for all politicians. So, which is why, don't get depressed, change must come from something outside of the political system. The political system and the politicians within it, they respond, they will do whatever they can get away with. They will maximize their own self-interest in, in unless they can no longer get away with it. They will put their finger in the wind and see which direction it's blowing. So rather than, you know, 
throwing another cork in the current to let it float wherever it wants to go, which would be like getting another politician involved or getting involved yourself, be the current, right? The beliefs of the public are the ultimate binding constraint on the political process, on what politicians do, what kind of rules we live under. If every single person in this country believes something, um, a politician can't contradict it if, or, or a police officer can't enforce it. If some politician got up today and said, I'm going to bring back slavery, it wouldn't fly because everyone believes deeply that that's horrific and they would be laughed off stage. If someone said, I'm going to ban red sweatshirts and make them illegal, good luck. Try enforcing it. We'd all laugh at you, right? If the beliefs of the public are such that the same is true of trying to ban marijuana or trying to enforce agricultural subsidies, then those policies won't be able to be enacted, regardless of who wins what elections. You don't need, as Milton Friedman said, the goal is not to get the right people in office, because if you do, they'll do the wrong thing anyway. The goal is to create an environment where it's politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. All right. Thank you so much for the question, Vivek. Thank you guys for the questions all year round. This was number 20, I think, of the Ask Isaac episodes. These have been a blast. I'm going to keep it up in 2016. And uh, I look forward to getting more questions from you. IsaacMorehouse.com slash ask dash Isaac. 